This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to Lends Me Your Ears. I'm Stephen Cook, arts reporter for the Chronicle Herald here in Halifax. I'm Karsten Knox, a blogger at Flaw on the Iris at halifaxbloggers.ca and the movie guru at CTV Morning Live. This is a movie podcast where we look at some current films and then examine some older titles that might be tangentially related. And hopefully you'll learn something about some films you might not have seen before. Welcome to this week's episode of Lens Me Your Ears. Once again, secret agents are back on the big screen at the box office, and we take a look at their forerunners, some of the great classics of espionage in the shadow of Mission Impossible and The Man from Uncle. So here we are again, Stephen. We're talking about spy thrillers as a result of having seen Mission Impossible Rogue Nation and uh, the, man, the Man from Uncle. And of course, Spy. And <laughs> Spy. How can we forget Paul Fig's Spy? Spy. And which I found was, was charming and funny, if very, very slight sort of comedy. I, yeah, well, it's, you know, it surpassed my expectations, yeah. to be honest. I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. And uh, I, I can say the same of, uh, of the new Mission Impossible and the Man from Uncle film, uh, which you know they have their certain limitations, but uh, you know if you can look past them, they're 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 pretty enjoyable. And I I think it's pretty safe to say, given our discussions uh, and watching these films prior to uh, taping this episode, that this is one of our all time favorite genres for both of us. Absolutely, it's going to be tough to keep it to an hour, but we're going to going to try. And, and still, I don't know that I have in any of our podcasts yet have done this much research and enjoyed it. So thoroughly, there are so many great spy movies out there. Going back to to well, I mean, uh, uh, Notorious and uh, uh, the the Third Man, and 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 then and then the the Golden Age, which I think are the the sixties and seventies Cold War. Definitely era. the Cold War. The 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 genre extends. Well, let's credit Fritz Lang for kind of. Uh, really bringing uh, the spy movie into uh, the picture uh, in the silent days with uh, a movie called, oddly enough, Spies. Oh, um, yes. You know, there was... Uh, uh, it, it, it kind of extends from the era of the First World War uh, when uh, the whole notion of, of espionage became a little bit better known by the public and through, through novels and that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, certainly Matahari... <laughs> was was enough of a legend that uh, that people got the idea of this romanticized uh, uh, and uh, kind of fatalistic world of, of the uh, international agent, uh, double agent, agent provocateur, what have you? Um, but and uh, and it continues through the the early days of sound. And but uh, the, but something about the Cold War, the the, the Berlin Wall, the Iron Curtain. Uh, the us versus them uh, aspect of it really seemed to have fired up imaginations, both in terms of, of, uh, of fiction and, and, and novelists, uh, and uh, and then in turn uh, the people who made movies looking for source material. And uh, you know, you, with, with stuff like the U two spy plane and the Cuban Missile Crisis in the news, it was it was hard not to get too wrapped up in it and turn that into entertainment. Well, I think I think that that of of the genres that we've looked at and, and may look at in the future, what really surprised me was how literary it is. Most of the movies I saw, I would say 80 to 90% of the movies I saw were adapted from a novel. And uh, and I really, I love that. And of course, there are some big names 
the uh, in spy fiction, obviously Ian Fleming, James Bond, and we don't want to get too much into that because when Spectre opens later this year, we're going to do our Bond podcast for yeah, sure. Yeah, in fact, I think it's safe to say we're barely going to talk about James Bond <laughs> in this episode, so prepare to be disappointed, uh, 007 fans. But uh, you know, we we do have a movie on the horizon and and more uh, more space to fill come November. <laughs> but, that's uh, right. You know that that's a whole topic on its own, and uh, of course. Uh, uh, James Bond is the most popular image that people have in their mind when they think of spy movies and espionage. And the fact that it has, of all the films, it seems to have the least to do with actual espionage. It's and, true. And, and everyone uh, knows who this guy is. Kind of yeah, <laughs> it's like the, the least secret, secret agent uh, you could ever imagine. But I mean, certainly makes for, for great films, but uh, um, a lousy portrayal of, of how espionage is done. But it was, you know, written by a guy who supposedly worked in intelligence. Um, back in the day, back in the, the Second World War and so on. And I guess there's a, there was a British miniseries sort of based on Ian Fleming's real-life exploits, uh, to, to some degree, anyway. But yeah. uh, but but I, I think it's just kind of a mistake to get too deep into that pool. Yeah, no, for sure. Save it for, for, the, for November. Uh, but, it, you know, I, for me, the spy genre has... It's on a spectrum. There's James Bond at one end, the heavy action uh, romanticisms, and then there's... Then you go way over to the other end, which is John le Carré. Both of these are British-sourced uh, intellectual, uh, you know, and and romantic uh, materials. But the le Carré stuff, and it's continued. I mean, le, le Carré's books have been adapted steadily into film right up until just a few years ago. I think the most recent adaptation came out. So, so you you see that there's a lot of room there for for fantasy stuff, the thrills, the the Mission Impossible stuff is certainly closer to James Bond. Uh, and then there's the Bourne movies, which uh, Robert Ludlum books and then turn into the films with uh, the the Paul Greengrass basically totally turned those movies around the second and third movie and and uh, Matt Damon you know became a, a bigger star than ever because as a result of him and I think mm. I think those movies kind of re-energized the genre for a lot of people but but what I like about those I think is that they they lie somewhere sort of in the middle of the spectrum they're not they're not quite James Bond they seem a little more gritty and maybe a little more a little more realism in some ways certainly the James Bond of of old the the Roger Moore Bond, uh, but uh, but then then there's there's also the sort of the the angst that comes from a guy who doesn't really know what who he is and and he's he's tortured uh, because of his past and and that speaks a lot more to to the Le Carre version of spy movies. Yeah, it's got a bit of that kind of flawed hero as opposed to what I call the super agent, which is more the Ethan Hunt uh, James Bond yes. model. I, I much prefer uh, this these uh, these characters to be kind of either slightly damaged or completely uh, off the rails, <laughs> as they often are. Um, and, and we see that in the Le Carre uh, stories and elsewhere. Um, you know, and the Bourne movies are great entertainment. I don't think of them as great kind of espionage, counterintelligence kind of films. I think they're, they're pretty, you know, they, they have a pretty straight-ahead objective. And yeah. I find the twists and turns are, are not on the same kind of level as you'd get from, say, a Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Or, yeah, for sure. Or, uh, or something like that. So... Uh, but you know they do kind of fall under this kind of broader umbrella. Yeah, no, and I, and I think also something like Jack Ryan, 
who I went back and rewatched all the Jack Ryan movies recently, and I found them to be not all that great, except for The Hunt for October. The first one was really, really fun because it really had a lot of espionage moments and notes to it, whereas the subsequent ones were more about action and explosions and, and the switching, the rotating cast uh, <laughs> of, of the lead, you know, didn't do the, the film any, the film's any favors. But, but we should talk about Mission Impossible. I went, also watched the first four of those, and I found those to, they held up pretty good. I mean, the first one from 96, Brian De Palma pulled together almost a Hitchcockian styled spy thriller. Uh, and, and, and one of the things he did that I really liked was, was he, he, he brought us, brought this wonderful cast together and then he killed most of them in the first 20 minutes. <laughs> yes. You know, uh, uh, Chris and Scott Thomas, Emilio Estes, we barely knew them. Yeah. Uh, so, and Vanessa Redgrave was a terrific villain. In fact, maybe my favorite villain in the Mission Impossible movies as Max, the arms dealer. Uh, and the second one, the John Woo movie was a bit of a disaster. I just felt like Hong Kong action movie cliches don't work as well yeah it kind of beat you over the head a little bit yeah <laughs> it worked in face off um, <laughs> yeah not, not so, so much, much here, here. Yeah. but but you know by the by the same token in comparison to other john woo north american action films like say paycheck it's, it's probably a head and shoulders above some of those films yeah absolutely but in this series it kind of sticks out a little bit uh, and then the third one was J.J. Abrams took over. They they seem to switch directors every time. And I really like J.J. Abrams movies. Uh, well, this one in particular. Generally, I, I'm hot and cold with him. I'm not a fan of his Star Trek movies, but I thought he did a great job here. And uh, and Philip Seymour Hoffman as the heavy was, was a great choice. Now, the fourth one, which came out, I believe, in 2011, uh, directed by Brad Bird, is a total blast. And, and largely what makes it so memorable is that unbelievable stunt sequence on the Burj Khalifa in Dubai outside the uh, the world's tallest building like it is it is uh, at that point i realized if if Tom Cruise wants to continue to risk his life for my entertainment, you should just go right ahead because I am <laughs> all for it. Uh, which brings us to the fifth one, Rogue Nation, which I really enjoyed. I had such a good time at this film. I thought the stunts were terrific. I thought the story was quite involved. And I really enjoyed the the addition to the cast. Uh, uh, Rebecca Ferguson, who is an actress, a British the Swedish actress who I'd never seen in anything before. She plays the wonderfully oh, named Ilsa Faust. And uh, there's this whole section in Casablanca, which I thought made a kind of great sense. You know, you got a character named Ilsa in Casablanca. I don't know. It just kind of worked <laughs> for me. But uh, between her and Alicia Vikander, who's uh, was in Ex Machina and now The Man from Uncle, it's it's been a good year for uh, promising young female actors. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, did you find did you enjoy Mission Impossible? I mean the the new one as much as the as the previous. I think I think the Brad Bird is has become the gold standard of the series. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, this this one does feels maybe a notch below but not much. Um you know, may, maybe because Brad just had a little more verve or or what have you. Um th- this one's directed by Christopher McQuarrie who famously co-wrote The Usual Suspects. Um, doesn't have much of a track record as a director. I think The Way of the Gun is probably his best-known film, and even that Jack Reacher he did with. Oh, he did uh, Jack Reacher. So, so obviously, you know, Cruz kind of handpicked him because they had a good working relationship on that film. Um, and uh, but you know, he's he's good with uh, with plot twists. He he knows how to how to kind of steer a plot through these ridiculous over-the-top action sequences and uh and uh you know hold the whole thing together and uh it's it's nice to see him pull it off uh you know hopefully that means some more plum assignments for him because i think he's got uh you know a good visual eye and and, and a good 
kind of sense of energy and verve that that uh, action films can can often sadly be lacking. <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah, I think so. And I think he he brought to this uh, the the idea of the locations were just gorgeous. I mean, that's that's something that that uh, that spy movies. My one of my favorite parts of a lot of spy movies is that they they choose beautiful European exotic and exotic locations to shoot in. In in this case, like the Viennese Opera, uh, Havana, London. Uh, I, I certainly. Uh, uh, enjoyed that that part that the opera uh, the element of the opera where they where Puccini's Turandot is 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 being performed and and Ethan Hunt's running through the rafters fighting people and there's about to be an assassination and Nessun Dorma is is being yeah. performed <laughs> and so I and I thought it was a really nice touch that the 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 music from that were, was played throughout the rest of the film you, you hear it sort of in the oh, background yeah, keeps the soundtrack in. Yeah. yeah that sequence uh, you know it's it's not like a super breathtaking one like the like the one set in dubai previously but but uh you know it's just uh such a well edited uh bit of you know scenery machinations and stunt work and then this kind of great clockwork setup not relying on cgi hardly at all i imagine there's some in there somewhere with some wires and things being airbrushed out but but for the most part it's it's pretty much as you see it um practical filmmaking and it's just it's just a stunner it's like well, that's how it's done. That's yeah. how you're supposed to. <laughs> yeah. That's how you're supposed to entertain people. Yeah, it's, it's, people need to jump off the roof at the end too. That's exactly what you, you know, need to do. I don't need to see any more fighting robots. Just give me, <laughs> you know, some opera and fisticuffs and totally. And yeah, and I I did like also that that the big big stunt that they used to promote the film happened in the first five minutes, mm. and and the film ended with with a twist that was true to the original series, something that you didn't see coming, and immediately our villain is trapped in a way that that is out of nowhere and I thought that was really well done and I I have to say that that Cruz in the past has annoyed me because he's so he's just so cocky at no time do you ever <laughs> feel like he's ever in re- any real danger because he's just too confident and and uh he's maturing and I feel like the fact that he's a little more vulnerable brings something to his character in this but it also it, it just makes makes you feel a little more for him that that he could actually might get hurt though granted in a in a in a single day in this movie, he is a revived from drowning. He's in a car accident and in a motorcycle accident without a helmet, and he seems fine. So yeah. you know, take that with a grain of salt. Yeah, that motorcycle accident that threw me for a loop. Just, you know, having just come off a bike at low speed a while back, it was you know that's that is painful enough. But doing it on a major highway going like a hundred miles an hour, I'm like, oh, I would put me in bed for a few days yeah. at least i would think <laughs> in the next scene he's just sort of sitting there all dirt covered and yeah, being like just, well well that, that happened yeah yeah not a scratch just, yeah just a smudge <laughs> uh, so it's interesting that that this movie is out now mission impossible five and it is born out of dna very similar to the man from uncle both were tv series from the 60s that were kind of a reaction to james bond i think they were very bond-esque but but i went back to watch a little bit of man from uncle the original series, I noticed how much, how playful it was. Like it really didn't take itself too seriously, and and I think that Guy Ritchie with the the new film borrowed some of that. I think he was true to that. This sort of this sort of '60s go-go boots, and uh, we're all having a good time here, even in the spy world. Yeah, the the Man from Uncle was definitely like a post Bond react, but you know it's amazing how well television reacted to that with a very strong series as opposed to just a slapdash kind of ripoff. Yeah, and, for sure. In fact, I'd, I'd read that Ian Fleming 
sort of consulted on it early on that he actually had some involvement in Man from Uncle, which is kind of interesting considering it was the competition. But um, maybe he didn't care because it was television. That could be. That could be. Although, interestingly enough, uh, episodes of Man from Uncle uh, in the '60s were stitched together and released overseas as uh, as movies. So huh. um, some of the two parter episodes are actually put out as as actual theatrical features in other parts of the world. In fact, uh, TCM showed one of them. Uh, from an early episode of the series, um, be- and because uh, uh, Ilya Karakin, the David McCallum's character, was barely involved in this particular episode, and I, from what I gather, it wasn't until they sort of gauged the the reaction of the teenage female audience that he came more into play. He was supposed to be more of a casual character, uh-huh. and the man from Uncle was Napoleon right, Solo, of played yeah, by yeah. Uh, Robert Vaughn in the TV series and uh, Henry Cavill in the movie. Um, and that the the Kraken was just supposed to be kind of like a, you know, like a casual bit of spice every mm. every few episodes, just to his, kind of his Felix Leiter. Yeah, exactly, to give him something to play off of. But of course, he quickly became the, the show's Mister Spock. Uh, you know, the the kind of constant sidekick and uh, and sharp contrast to uh, Solo's sort of cocky American attitude. He's got this kind of jazzy, um, not quite hippie because it's a little before that era, but, but certainly, uh, you know, he had the shaggy blonde hair and he listened to jazz records and, and, uh, was certainly a lot cooler than solo was. Right. And More of a beatnik maybe. It, yeah. A little bit of that a little, you know, he had a bit of that Eastern, uh, Savoir, Eastern European Savoir fair, I guess. Sure, sure. And, uh, and that was the chemistry that made that show such a hit for so long. Yeah. I, I, it was really fun watching it again. I noticed how much, how long the episodes were, it, you know, it used to be, a, there was a lot less advertising in the sixties. An hour long mm. was actually like 53 minutes. Pretty much. Yeah. So, so there's a lot more content, uh, and it was fun. I, I was great to see in the second season. Uh, I believe it's the second season. There, there's an episode where where Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner yes, show up. The Project up. Strygas Affair. There you go. <laughs> I, I have a copy of that one. <laughs> <laughs> I was really cool to see them pre Star Trek working together. It, yeah, it is very odd, and and, and that Nimoy is kind of the villain. Yes, you know he's like an evil henchman or something like that mm-hmm. at, at an embassy and. And I think Shatner's a physicist or something. Who's, yeah, it's one of those things where, where people get... This happened a lot in those, that show where people got... Regular folks got reeled in and had to pretend in some sort of spy deal that they were part or someone else. And, and it was amazing how, how they went along with this. They were just like, okay, sure, I'll pretend to go to this party and, and, and play along, you know? And that sort of carries over to the feature, uh, yes. the, the the new film by Guy Ritchie, or does it, uh, <laughs> where someone gets sucked into this ploy to stop uh, some uh, some new world post-Second World War fascists from uh, obtaining a nuclear device and uh, initiating a, the Third World War and bringing a new world order into place. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it, it's uh, a typical spy movie plot, I guess, you know, kind of Cuban Missile Crisis inspired um and uh i did enjoy the film i i like that guy Ritchie backed off of the stylistic excesses of his last sherlock holmes movie where i just thought you know he just kind of went overboard on, mm-hmm. on the kind of you know meth fueled editing and and you know kind of the ridiculous color palette and you know everything being in kind of shades of blue and you know steel gray and all that kind of thing so so here it's 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 nice that it's a little easier on the eyes as a film. Yeah, it's uh, you know it's it's often a gorgeous film. The 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 style, the 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 art uh, direction uh, on the film is, is quite wonderful. Um, 
you know, again, the, the, the fantastic settings. I love that, you know, one of the title cards is Rome, Italy, <laughs> in huge letters on the screen. Like, oh, yeah, there's not, they're clearly not in upstate New York. Um, <laughs> you know, when you see the Coliseum in the background or yeah. whatever. But, uh, you know, and I guess that's just having fun with, with the genre. You know, and of course, uh, if you read the reviews, the, the, the two big drawbacks are its stars, according to a lot of the reviews. And I guess it's true in one sense. Um, that uh, Henry Cavill and uh, Army Hammer don't seem to have a lot of one-on-one kind of chemistry, um, like they like those t- characters did on the series. Granted, it's their first encounter, and, and they're sort of naturally inclined to be hostile. But but I, I found that they were a little more one note than than Vaughn and, and McCallum. I felt I felt that way too. I, I thought the Cavill seemed to be trying too hard to be suave. I mean, he had the suits and he had the look. Mm. He's a he's a very handsome fellow, of course. Otherwise known as Superman these days, but uh, but I, I did feel like that he was making too much of an effort, and, and, and he should he should be effortless if he's going to be genuinely the the suave super spy. Uh, Army Hammer, I, I he was yeah he didn't he didn't do much for me either. I think I think that that he, he just he may not be a movie star. You know, he might be a decent actor, but I don't think he's I don't think he can command command the, the your attention the way that that uh that some other some other people can and and i i felt that especially <laughs> when someone like hugh grant wanders in and is immediately yeah the charisma is, just, is right there yeah um yeah. and uh, or jared harris for that matter <laughs> for sure but uh yeah you know playing an american for some reason but um yeah the, I, i've seen a few films with army hammer in them and he just fails to register i mean he, yeah. you know he, he's he's not I mean, he's not awful. He's 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 not. Um, oh man, I forgot the name of that guy who was in Pearl Harbor. <laughs> All of a sudden, but the, the Josh Hartnett. He's no Josh Hartnett. <laughs> right. I mean, he's, he's certainly an improvement on that level of, of of actor. But you know, I think of him in like Jay Edgar and 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 uh, the Lone Ranger movie. Yeah. He just does not. You know, th- th- this guy has got some sort of horseshoe up his butt because he keeps getting these plum rolls. Well, and I think he was great in The Social Network where he played those two characters. True. But he hasn't quite found his niche as a leading man. And there's a lot of people who aren't leading men that are just character actors and maybe maybe that's him. Uh, the fact of the matter is, I really enjoyed the movie anyway. Yeah. And it's, it's hard to believe given that generally you really need to feel something for the leads in order to feel, feel engaged in the movie. But I found that the direction and the writing and the look of it, the production values and the style and the music... All, oh, and and the sporting cast all worked so well yeah. that it didn't matter that it was a little hollow in the middle. I still got carried away by it and, and totally enjoyed it. Yeah, it seems. Well, yeah, me too. I mean, they're not a negative. They don't. They're not a minus in this film. Like, I don't know. I, I, I'm going back to Josh Hartnett on this, but I think of like De Palma's uh, The Black Dahlia, which is a movie. I is a subject I, I couldn't wait to see turn into a film, and then. You know, get this kind of black hole of a leading man in the middle of this film. He's kind of redeemed himself a little bit in the series Penny Dreadful, but yeah, not, I think he's a lot better. In um, Penny Dreadful, you know, I think right. he's a little more relaxed now. But, but um, you know, here uh, Karakin, he seemed, he's like hot tempered all the time, and he's like quick to to anger, which is not really what the character was like in in the '60s series. He was kind of cooler. He's more contemplative and philosophical, yeah. you know, and and a lot more intellectual than Solo. And uh, here they take a few stabs at, at establishing him that way, but it's not the overriding uh, feeling for the character. And, and uh, so, you know, but the, you know, the, the end is definitely set up to, to further the franchise, although uh, it, kind of just dis- was a disappointment at the box office apparently. So yeah, it is too bad. Hopefully I, they'll, they'll you know, get another shot at it. Cause I think it, it, 
it could be a lot of fun. I would definitely go to see see another version, another a sequel to this. But but then you know this is what we're here for because we love spy movies, and this is a genuinely a spy movie. I <laughs> yeah, I you know even, old school, and, uh, and we got we got uh, Secret Service, The Kingsman was another one recently that I enjoyed with some some uh, some issues with it, but for yeah. the most part, I really liked. And then there's American Ultra opening, and then another new James Bond movie. I, I'm actually really excited that there are so many spy movies that are that people are enjoying right now that uh, that you can go and see see many times a year. Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, and I am host of The Food Podcast. Now, this is not a cooking podcast. We'll talk about the history of food, we'll meet the players in the food world, and we'll explore the ingredients that fill our lives with flavor. Check us out on iTunes and Stitcher. We'd love to hang out with you. Welcome back to Lensby Rears. We're taking a look at classic spy films uh, in connection with, of course, some recent uh, box office openings of espionage-themed films like The Man from U.N.C.L.E. and the latest entry in the Mission Impossible series, uh, Rogue, uh, Rogue Nation. Uh, but now we're taking a look back at, at some classics of the genre, uh, the golden age of spy movies. And uh, as we mentioned earlier in the show, that was definitely the Cold War era of the 50s and especially the 60s. Yeah, and I was impressed to note that, being a long fan of James Bond, that the Ipcris file, which is, you know, the this character from the Lynn Dayton novel, this this Harry Palmer, pl- played so well by Michael Caine, kind of his one of his signature roles, really, uh, was the, the first film was a lot of the production were people who had worked on Bond movies. It was like their their summer vacation or something. They were going off to make another spy movie, which couldn't really be more different than Bond. Uh Harry Palmer is 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 a little bit anti authoritarian. He's he's cockney. Uh he certainly has more in common with the sort of new culture of the sixties than than Bond, which is more of a he's more of a rat packer, more of a you know Frank Sinatra fan, whereas I bet you Harry Palmer listened to the Beatles, you know? There's yeah, that and, kind of vibe. And, in fact there's a Beatles reference in Billion Dollar Brain, the third film in the series and of course james bond was kind of famously square uh in some regards there's a in one of the early films he makes a reference to uh, listening to the beatles with earmuffs that's right (laughs) and so you know he kind of uh, stakes himself as being part of the old guard uh right off the bat whereas uh harry palmer was 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 hipper definitely uh as you say more anti-establishment he I, i believe he was a criminal i mean he was acting as an agent basically to stay out of prison right rather than you know for love of country or anything like that he was just doing it to save his own skin yeah, and it's a and it's a really fun movie. It's a little grittier, a little dirtier, maybe a little closer to the Le Carre, but certainly still pretty playful. Uh, it was produced uh, the Ipcris file. The first movie was produced by Harry Saltzman, edited by Peter Hunt, production designed by Ken Adam, and scored by John Barry, who is maybe <laughs> the most valuable player of all spy movies, John Barry, because his scores show up in a lot of them. Uh, yeah, and and Kane is great, and he went on to make. Funeral in Berlin in 1966, which was directed by Bond veteran Guy Hamilton. And then The Billion Dollar Brain in 67, directed by Ken Russell, of all people. And uh, and then he took a long break, but he came back to the role in the 90s with two TV movies, The Bullet to Beijing and Midnight in St. Petersburg. Now, I've seen The Ipcris File, and I, I really enjoyed it, and I would recommend it for those who are looking to get into the golden age of spy movies. I haven't seen the others, but they're definitely on my list to, to see. I, I noticed the two from the 90s, are are not well reviewed. The 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 first no. three I think are pretty well regarded though. Yeah, well the other ones are clearly like 
shot at the same time cable productions productions <laughs> that uh, were done on the cheap um and Kane you know has that kind of absent minded look in his eyes wondering <laughs> when his check's going to clear um you know i mean i saw them on laserdisc so that tells you how long ago i saw those but uh but the first three are, are, are terrific um you know each one steadily a little less than the one that came before but uh, the ipcris file is such a great film um you know, I think of that great torture scene where he's kind of... It's a bit psychedelic. Psycho- yeah, a psychedelic torture scene where he's broken down with a series of... It, it kind of predates the, the Clockwork Orange uh, sequence where Alex has to force to watch a bunch of violent images. Um, and and uh, I think uh, Three Days of the Con... No, um, The Parallax View with uh, Warren Beatty. It's sure, a similar yeah. kind of sequence that uh, I really recommend checking out. Uh, it's directed by Sidney J. Fury, a Canadian. Uh, he, he's come up a lot in our podcast. Yeah, he's uh, he had a love of Dutch angles. There's a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, he he's he, I, I he's often a style over substance kind of director. Um, I recommend seeking out his early film, The Leather Boys, which is a great film about British uh, motorcycle gang. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, here he just goes to town and uh, you know more slanted angles than an episode of Batman. <laughs> <laughs> right through it, and but you know he does that in a lot of his films. I watched a western uh, that he did with Marlon Brando called The Appaloosa, and it's uh, more of the same kind of thing. A lot of you know, a lot of shots framed in doorways and dappled light, and you know, there's, there's a lot of stylistic touches that don't necessarily further the story or anything like that, but they look cool. So you know, he, he has that going for him. Um, funeral to Berlin, a funeral in Berlin is a little more, uh, is a little more black humor in that one. Basically, he's got to smuggle Oscar Homolka, a German. Uh, East German bureaucrat or diplomat uh, get him out of uh, East Berlin and get him into West Berlin. But of course, there's some great double and triple crosses. Uh, you know, I love any film that looks at that whole Checkpoint Charlie kind of regime, that era of crossing over the wall and what that entails, and you know how difficult it was to get from one side to the other, or how easy for for some people. Uh, and there's a lot of that in Funeral in Berlin. In uh, Billion Dollar Brain is just a, a crazy <laughs> uh, kind of more Bond-esque kind of spy fantasy that's set uh, in Scandinavia on the, on the I think on the Finnish-Russian border where um, I think Carl Malden plays like a American billionaire who's trying to start a war okay you know so that he can profit off it right um and, uh, you know, the billion-dollar brain re- refers to a computer that that's involved in secrets going back and forth um you know, again, it's Ken Russell, uh, you think of Tommy, uh, maybe Listomania, uh, <laughs> some, of the, some of his crazy films, certainly The Devils. Um, just, and it's not quite the stylistic orgy that those films are, but this is still pretty early in his feature film career. Right. So, he hadn't, you know, gone, he he hadn't, hadn't yeah, found he, his voice quite exactly. as much. Exactly. You know, he hadn't gone on to, yeah. but, but, but certainly, you know, he has a flair for, for making it fun to watch and, and vibrant and, and uh, there's some some good action sequences along the way. So you know, definitely try and uh, and and Billion Dollar Brain has only recently been uh, released in North America on home video. There's some copyright issues involving some of the music. Like I say, there's a Beatles uh, reference that oh, kind of yeah. held it up for a long time. Uh, so you know, if you can find a copy, definitely check it out. The other two, um, I think Ipcris File is out of print on DVD. So hopefully it's available through some other source. And uh, Funeral in Berlin, I have an old Paramount uh, disc of that. So hopefully th- that's still available. I think it's uh, some. I think Funeral in Berlin and Billion Dollar Brain, probably they, you might be able to find them on um, 
on Netflix, uh, Ipcris file too, but uh, but you may need the uh, international. Yeah, Netflix. you don't. Yeah, I, I did a search for Michael. I was curious to catch up on some Michael Caine flicks, and uh, on Canadian Netflix, there's not much there. Right. <laughs> there's like about four or five movies, and considering how much stuff he's in, that's kind of a shame. That, it is that so little of his work is on there. But uh, now you also saw The Defector, which is one I haven't seen, and uh, and it's notable for being the final role of of a of a, of a great actor. Yeah, it's uh, Montgomery Clift's final film. It's uh, from 1966. Six, uh, it shows up on TCM uh, from time to time, and I think you can get it through the uh, the Warner Archive uh, series if you want a physical copy. I, it's it's kind of a watch once and kind of put behind you kind of film, but but it is available in physical media as well as uh, uh, an, an annual or semi annual airing on TCM. And basically, Montgomery Clift is a is a, an American physicist who gets kind of drafted to uh, to carry out some work on behalf of the CIA. And you know, I always like that kind of innocent. By Stan Hitch- Hitchcock was loved this plot line as we'll see, but um, uh, where the innocent sort of bystander gets sucked up into the world of espionage and then has to kind of use his wits to get out, and and this is a pretty good example of it. Uh, Clift uh, is recruited by Roddy McDowell of all people to uh, to go into uh, what East Germany, uh, and it's it's concurrent with the time it's mid 60s uh and uh and it gets some information that a russian physicist is is trying to uh get out of the country and uh so basically he's got to a get used to this whole world of of double dealing and and uh the the german secret police uh, operations and also find this russian physicist who at some point we're not even sure if this guy's alive or not and and that becomes part of part of the plot as well clift is um he looks tired <laughs> i mean he like i said he died of uh uh, I guess a heart attack probably induced by alcoholism uh, not too long after this film was completed. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it kind of suits the character that he's tired and worn down because he has all these encounters with the German uh, secret police who just kind of lace into him <laughs> to try and find out why he's there and what he's after and what the secret is that he's trying to get in his microfilm and et cetera, et cetera. So it's a lot of the kind of standard spy boilerplate, but it's, you know, it's filmed on some great locations. Uh, like I say, it's got a great cast. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's very matter of fact in the way it portrays his mission. It's, it's not a stylistic, uh, eye popper like, like those, uh, Len Dayton, uh, Harry Palmer films. But, uh, but you know, you kind of, have a begrudging admiration for Clift as he kind of tries to get through this mission and get back to his uh, his life on the other side. Um, the director uh, had a very troubled life. He committed suicide shortly after the film's release due to romantic uh, failures and 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 uh, the the complete flop of a Marco Polo uh, epic that he poured all his money into. But uh, so a lot of tragedy associated with this film. Maybe that's why people don't like to think about it too much. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, if, if if you like the subject matter, definitely worth catching. And it does have a cameo by the Smurfs. So what? There's, there's an, I, I kid you not. Seriously, I, I didn't even know there were Smurfs that far back. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the, I mean, they have their, their. I think they date back to the, the early 60s when okay. they were like in kids' comic magazines or whatever. Okay. But, but yeah, that was a big shocker too to, <laughs> to see the Smurfs suddenly appear in, in this <laughs> mid-60s spy movie. But there you go. There you go. Okay. Something, something else to, to keep an eye out for. Something, another film, another spy movie from 66 that we did see together was The Quiller Memorandum. This is one that stuck in my head, maybe because the title, all these spy movies have, have a a lot of titles <laughs> that are related to like forms and papers there's the kremlin letter there's there's the quiller memorandum there's we were thinking about <laughs> we we're talking about potential updating to that yeah, that sort of the trope. kiev tweet 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, we need to we need to keep going there uh, with those. I'd love to see more of those come our way. But uh, anyway, <laughs> the Odessa flash drive. <laughs> um, the the Quiller Memorandum, directed by Michael Anderson, Harold Pinter wrote the screenplay based on a novel by Trevor Dudley Smith. Now. George Siegel is Quiller. He's an American spy, sort of by way of Elliot Gould, uh, sort of the way that Elliot Gould was a private detective in The Long Goodbye, sort of a fumbling, charming guy, not de- not demonstrating a lot of skill in his work necessarily, but we find him in West Berlin, and he's replaced a, a guy who got killed who replaced a guy who got killed, <laughs> all of whom were looking for this neo-Nazi group led by Max von Sydow, or Sydow, Sydow. Uh, the, the great Swedish actor does a lot of spy movie work in this, this in this <laughs> period. Uh, Quiller wanders around looking for the Nazis. He, he meets a young German teacher named Inga, played by Santa Berger, who gives him a lead, and Alec Guinness is his controller. And, of course, Alec Guinness would go on to be famous TV spy in the British productions of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and Smiley's People. Of course, we'll talk about Jean Le Carré adaptations a little later on. But uh, one thing I really liked about Guinness was that he has he offers this mid movie clarification of the plot using two muffins and a raisin. I think <laughs> Guinness is fabulous in this, and and it, what a surprise this movie was. I, I, you know, I, I never had a really, I, I didn't hate George Siegel. I, I always felt he was better known for appearances on talk shows than than his actual film appearances. But um, but he was on kind of a hot streak when this film came out. He'd just been in the film uh, King Rat about uh, an enterprising prisoner of war uh, based on, a, I guess, a novel by James Clavell, who wrote Shogun, sure. amongst, and Taipei, amongst other things. And, and that film had been a huge hit uh, with him and Tom Courtenay um, as the more principled prisoner of war, whereas uh, George Segal is out to kind of work the system as kind of a con artist uh, behind uh, enemy lines sort of thing. So, um, you know, he definitely was building an early film persona as this kind of wise guy, schemer sort of character. And it fits really well in this film. I, I find that uh, he's very unpredictable. You know, he's, he, certainly, uh, he certainly is more intelligent than he lets on to anybody around him and, uh, and uh, has a few, uh, few narrow escapes. And, uh, you know, I just love the way he uses his wits in, a, in an unconventional way. He's not the typical uh, secret agent or spy. Uh, like, like you say, like the, the professionals that got killed, you know, because he's so unconventional and kind of slapdash in his approach, it actually plays into his favor. Um, and it's, it's interesting that it's not, he's, you know, it's neo-Nazis in Germany rather than, you know, another country or, it, or you know, the other side of the Cold War. That makes it kind of interesting, gives it a bit of spice, I guess. Um, and, uh, you know, good use of German locations that yeah, makes the post-war West, Berlin looks really bleak and West, depressing. West Germany, uh, certainly that, that they shot in the busiest part of West Berlin. Certainly, I recognize it from my visit there. And uh, it, the film has a terrific wide-angle look. There's a few shots where, where we're looking down on street scenes, and then the camera pulls back, and you realize we're looking through a window. And it, it's the kind of thing that I don't think I've ever seen done this way before. And I was really impressed by the way it was directed. I really felt like this isn't a movie that the the, the genre is is kind of notable for its thrills and for its suspense. I mean, it's really a, that's one of the best things about spy movies that it keeps you in suspense. And I don't think that this film had a huge amount of suspense, but it it did have sort of a in its sort of lazy way around the narrative. It did have you wind up caring about the characters. You wind up, wind up being it's a puzzle that you really wind up engaged in. And uh, and I found myself almost despite myself really enjoying it. <laughs> really enjoying. It. I thought I thought it was. 
was a big surprise, and, and I'd recommend the Quiller Memorandum pretty much to anyone who uh, who wants to go back and, and look. Yeah, and uh, a fine fine job by Michael Anderson, who's probably best known for doing Around the World in 80 Days, uh, which is, you know, mostly just a corralling a bunch of celebrity cameo stars in a bunch of exotic locations. So um, here it's nice to see him sink his teeth into something a little more substantial. So we we also went uh, into The Kremlin Letter. Now, this is another movie I had never seen before this researching the podcast. And I, I think I had a vague recollection of it uh, amongst the... It's a John Huston movie, and he wrote the screenplay from a Noel Bean novel. And this is uh, this this is one of those very sort of boilerplate spy movies that, that really goes a long way on its plot. It's Patrick O'Neill is a Navy intelligence officer named Roan who gets sort of press ganged by the CIA to work on a, on a Moscow set sting. He, he has a, a talent for for remembering basically a photographic memory, so that helps him a lot. But he's 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 pretty amoral character. Now this is a this movie is shot in Rome and Helsinki, and it has an amazing supporting cast. John Huston shows up in a in a single scene, but also in the film is Orson Welles as as a, a Russian military man and Max von Sydow again. again. <laughs> uh, George Sanders as a spy named Warlock and B.B. Anderson as a pawn of many diabolical men. It, it is dated in some ways, but I, I would call it kind of a prototypical spy movie. There's Cold War, there's solid locations, there's an overly complicated plot, which which le- left me scratching my head at a couple of moments, with lots of betrayals and reversals, and a little bit of a glamour in, in the fact that this the guy in the center of it has this special gift, but it is it is a genuinely dark film. Yeah, I, I kind of went into this just thinking, oh, well, it's John Huston. He's my favorite director. I, I think I'm on the record as saying that. And then it was a film of his with which I was unfamiliar. Um, and uh, he does have a, I mean, you know, he has a feel for downbeat stories. Let's face it. You know, <laughs> so many of his stories end with its central character getting killed at the end. <laughs> uh, it happens a lot. Yeah. And, um, you know, so you're you're prepared for anything when you watch a, a John Huston film. And, and this is kind of in the middle of what's considered to be kind of a fallow period for him when he's making films like uh oh geez I'm, there's like a walk with life and death i think which starred his daughter which was just barely got a release and uh i think there was a film called mary andrew which is kind of like a tom jones-esque romp with john hurt huh. uh, i think i've got the title wrong uh, right on that one but um you know the, these kind of films you know where he's just kind of flailing about <laughs> trying to find a property that would succeed and it wasn't until Kind of uh, the man who would be king, kind of put him back in, uh, back in uh, the upper echelon of, of directors, you know, and things like that, and Wise Blood and Fat City, right? Uh, terrific uh, boxing film that kind of turned his career around. But you know, considering what a top flight director he was, I mean, The Maltese Falcon and Treasure of the Sierra Madre, you know, that that he'd have this kind of lost in the wilderness uh, kind of. Uh, kind of period it just it seems kind of odd but you know most directors of his generation had pretty much dropped out of the game by this point so the fact that he could keep going and and you know make films like Pritzi's Honor and mm-hmm. The Dead and Under the Volcano but um, but this is in kind of a follow period and I think I think as a, in general those films tend to get kind of overlooked and, and the fact that it wasn't available on home video for, for years and years and years um, uh, just meant that people hadn't seen it, it hadn't had much of a reputation and I don't think he thought that much of it based on uh, its its box office reception but it, it is a really intriguing look at this kind of world again a guy who's maybe not so much of a spy getting drawn into that world and uh, you know it's, it's Houston so he draws together an amazing cast and uh, you know there's 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 no moment that isn't filled with somebody who's just amazing to watch you know just you know even if they're 
if it's not a great scene, just watching Orson Welles kind of go through his paces is, is uh, reward enough. If you can track this down, it's, it, there's a lot uh, going for this film that uh, has been underappreciated for so many decades. Yeah, and I, I would say that uh, that I, I was very quite pleased with having seen it. Again, it, it, it speaks to the things about the genre that I like. And uh, and. I and and it was it was a little bit of a gift. I, I would also say I was surprised at this because I had read nothing but bad things about it. But the Tamarind Seed from 1974 was also a, a, a genuine surprise and a pleasure when I watched it. It's directed by Blake Edwards and starring his wife Julie Andrews and Omar Sharif. I guess part of the pleasure of seeing it was seeing Omar Sharif in a role I had never seen him in before, given the, the fine actor uh, passed away recently. And it's uh, it's written by Edwards from an Evelyn Anthony novel. Now. Edwards is mostly known for his comedy work in movies like The Pink Panther, but here he takes a very different approach, and uh, and I I totally enjoyed it. Now the opening credits, another Bond connection. The opening credits were from Maurice Binder, oh, of course, and uh, and there's a terrific and very angular John Barry score, which uh, I really like. Now Andrews in the film plays a heartbroken woman who is employed by the British Home Office. Now she works for an important man there. Now she's just ended her affair with a married diplomat and has escaped to Barbados to recover. There she meets Sharif's Russian spy. Now he's an odd for a Russian, but you sort of have to go along with. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, if it could be from the Berber part of yeah, or whatever, potentially. Like, you know, Azerbaijan. Um, he he. Uh, now, what he misses though in that kind of Russian grit, he makes up makes up in, of course, smooth sensuality. Uh, <laughs> he's determinedly woos her and even goes back to London to follow her, despite the fact he's posted to Paris. Now, the fact of their liaison is trouble for both of them. She's warned by the British intelligence to steer clear of him, and he tries to convince his people he's trying to turn her. So the real fun of the film is trying to figure out whether he's being sincere or not. He's remarkably frank about his being a professional liar, but that's what makes his character so compelling. She believes everything he says, uh, and she, even though she knows she can't very well trust him. And uh, all of this is against the backdrop of bed-hopping diplomatic corps in, pa- in Paris and how the intelligence service manages all of this infidelity because people are sleeping with Russians and sleeping with Brits and sleeping with Americans. Uh, and I found it actually, for a spy melodrama, a fairly philosophical film, and as much a romance as it is a thriller. And, uh, and it, you know, it fulfills the spy genre requirements, but uh, when, the action, when the action does finally arrive, there's a return to Barbados, it's laughably bad. There's an action explosion and, and gunfight that on the beach that just is yeah it, it feels very very poor but uh, everything leads up to it is is pretty great and i i think that the the plot being the way it is i think it actually could it's one of those movies i could see re- being remade and and done well and updated for the new millennium yeah well like houston uh edwards was kind of grasping at straws at this point in his career uh there's a string of films uh the carry treatment uh with uh the always cool James Coburn uh, as a doctor investigating a murder case uh, was a, another film that, that has aged better than his reputation would would uh, belie. It was kind of a straightforward murder mystery from Edwards, and I guess it just wasn't what people expected from him at that time. Um, there's a number of other films that came out at this time. I think he made a western that kind of flopped, and and some other things. But but uh, it's interesting that he's trying to do something a little different uh, in terms of uh, the spy thriller, and also for Julie Andrews. You know, who'd recently been in a flop musical called Star that uh, was one of the biggest uh, disasters in 20th Century Fox history. So, so, so she's trying to get away from the musical thing because it's clearly uh, that that genre was uh, 
was uh, definitely on vital on, on, on ICU at that point uh, in, in the early 70s. Uh, so everybody's trying to do something a little different, and maybe that's what gives it some spice that, that, yeah. that works today. Um, I only have the vaguest memories of seeing it as a kid. It used to show up, uh, the Tamarinson used to show up on Academy Performance, on CTV's kind of late night or weekend night movie show where they shows bring out some uh tired old hollywood warhouse <laughs> and put it on in on a you know in, in after prime time or whatever and there's a lot of films that just always the medusa touch with Richard Burton <laughs> yeah. was another one that was yeah, on, like sure i, I know that at one at least well. once a year if not twice a year it would show up it just it seems to be a, a part of a package of films from that period that they had bought and just kept showing and it was just something i could never get through so i i would be, i would like to see a good copy of it and you know as opposed to like a faded 16 millimeter print sure. cut up by commercials with probably with any adult material taking out of it so you know i always felt that there's probably a good film in there i just uh, never got a chance to discover it so uh and, and edwards is always an interesting director no matter what yeah he does. well i we had mentioned him in the our dark comedy segment because right, he directed sob which yeah. which uh, I, again it was that feeling that he both he and andrews are looking for a different approach to what they were known for um but uh yeah i, I should we should move on to a couple other things i'm just going to touch on them quickly the odessa file from 74 i also watched directed by ron neem it's from frederick's forsyth who is a big name in spy novels he also wrote day of the jackal dogs of war and the fourth protocol which all have spy elements mm. to them uh day of the jackal and fourth protocol probably more uh, more than dogs of war which is which is one of the staple mercenary stories i think that was also made into a movie with uh, um, uh christopher, christopher walken, walken. Yeah. yeah yeah i saw that at scotia square oh yeah oddly enough yeah um but old enough to get in uh, this this one didn't didn't wow me. Uh, part of it was John Voight is fine. He's playing a German journalist, but it's that it's the trope of of English actors acting with German accents when they're all supposed to be German. And I just I find that a little distracting. Uh, but and and it's weird how they use the language because occasionally we do actually hear German like in subway announcements. But it's basically this guy who dis, who discovers he stumbles upon the diary. He's a journalist. He stumbles upon the diary of a suicide of a concentration camp survivor and. And then he goes undercover to find the SS officer who ran the camp who's still alive. So it's it's kind of a, a Nazi hunter story. Um, this is more of a mystery, I'd say, than an actual spy movie. But, you know, it's it's got some pleasures. But I, I would say I like The Fourth Protocol or Day of the Jackal. I like the other movies a little bit more in terms of Frederick Forsyth adaptations. I also watched something called The Intercene, Internecine Project from 74. This is written by Mort Eklund. Uh, Barry Levinson and Jonathan Lynn Whoa. wrote it. Uh, Levinson produced it. And uh, it was directed by Ken Hughes. And, uh, yeah, there's a big name associated with a spy movie, not a genre that that he's known for apparently <laughs> i happened to be at the library the other day and lee i saw lee grant's autobiography she's in it and and she barely mentions the films i think she called it flimsy but uh, <laughs> because when she came on set there was a 16 page screenplay but she really wanted to do it because uh, it she wanted to work with james coburn and he's he's quite good in the movie he plays a former spy who's getting a sweet government uh, position, but he wants to cover up his past, so he orchestrates a satisfyingly twisty operation whereby four of his former associates m- murder each other on the same night. <laughs> and uh, it's London set, which I enjoyed, but I found it very uh, the the copy I saw in it was very sort of muddy and hard to see, and it's mostly interiors, over furnished rooms, and and poorly lit back projection. It's kind of entertainingly trashy, uh, if I'm being honest. And I it has there's a great uh, 
creepy shower strangulation scene. But if you're into that kind of thing, (laughs) (laughs) but uh, I I would say that it's worth seeing and maybe a double feature with other. If you're a fan of Coburn's uh, work, watch it with The Last of Sheila, which is another movie where he arranges a complicated and murderous puzzle with former colleagues, except that one's set on a yacht. Uh, (laughs) And it's one of the few films that uh, didn't Stephen Sondheim co-write that? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, um, uh, Tony Perkins, I think. So uh, anyway, um, but yeah, those ones, uh, those ones are, are somewhat worth seeing, I guess, if you're really into spy movies. Uh, before we, we break, though, I just wanted to give a, a nod to two much better known spy movies, Three Days of the Condor and Marathon Man, both of which I saw when I was probably too young to, to really grasp what these movies were about. But um, rewatching them again recently, I noticed how great they are, and they truly are it's the high points, I think, of 70s spy movies. Uh, Three Days of the Condor directed by Sidney Pollack, screenplay by Lorenzo Semple Jr. and David Raphael. Uh, and uh, and then Marathon Man was directed by John Schlesinger, written by William Goldman from his novel. Uh, they're both wonderful, wonderful films where you really actually get a sense. Robert Redford in Three Days and, uh, and certainly Dustin Hoffman and Roy Scheider, you really feel for these people in a way. I think that's what makes them uh, extraordinarily good examples of genre because you you actually care a lot about the characters, it's not just about the plot. It's actually you you hope you really pray they're going to make it through <laughs> to the end of the movie, and you really don't know if they're going to because it's 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 dicey out there. And they're both New York set as well, and they do great things with the locations there. Yeah, I do love the way that paranoia creeps into uh, these films. I mean, there's that aspect of paranoia in those '60s Cold War thrillers, but it uh, you know maybe coming out of uh, uh, 1984 by by uh, George Orwell. I mean, it just kind of takes that and takes it a step further. Here, here uh, in the Watergate era, in you know, in, in post Vietnam or whatever, that um, the feeling just gets ratcheted up even further. That that you you can't trust anybody. That and that the establishment is, you know, in 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 the Cold War thrillers, at least you kind of believe that the establishment on either side is kind of, you know, in their own rights. But then it's the bureaucracy underneath that's kind of corrupt and rotten here it's even at the top you can't trust anybody and, yeah it's and true that, and that kind of filters into into these films and and you really feel that kind of the poison that was flowing through that whole decade um you know and, and the parallax view uh, with warren Beatty is another one i'd recommend uh, in very similar vein uh you know so and you know three of the top leading men of, of that decade uh making these kind of really well crafted and kind of twisty turny thrillers um you know, just it goes to show, you know, how powerful these kind of stories were for moviegoers then. Yeah, for sure. And and I think the I think that you're right, that it's the paranoia, the culture has changed. And these are spy movies, but there's a lot more to them. And I, I really also should mention Max von Sydow once again <laughs> shows up in three days of the Condor. Yes, he, uh, he, he he's he's he leads the the group of thugs who break into the CIA office and, and kill kill everyone early on, except for Robert Redford's Joe Turner character, who therefore is on the run for the rest <laughs> of the story for the next three days. Well, no wonder he played Ming the Merciless. <laughs> So it seems that after the golden age of spy thrillers, there was not as many great ones until this new sort of era of franchise action spy thrillers have <laughs> kind of taken over with the Mission Impossibles and the the Bournes and what have you. Um, I liked 
Ronald Roger Donaldson's No Way Out, the Kevin Costner when he was young and svelte and dangerous picture, uh, where he's playing a guy stuck in the Pentagon. That was kind of a not a bad one. It's it's uh, and and I also enjoyed uh, the Graham Greene adaptation, The Quiet American, the second adaptation. I guess there was an earlier film from '58. Yes, I have a copy of that one. Um, but yeah, I don't. Have you seen it? I haven't seen the earlier. <laughs> I haven't one. actually watched it. It's my to watch file. <laughs> but but I did enjoy the remake quite a bit. So uh, I'm I'm curious to see how the original. Yeah, incarnation I, goes I, I gather that it's actually worth seeing the but the original which the the story from the novel is actually quite anti-american it's set in vietnam and i guess in the first movie they made it quite anti-communist which really annoyed graham green so he would have been happier if he had been still alive he would have been happier when the quiet american showed up in 2002 with michael Caine, and they were a little more true to the story uh and he you know it turned out he was right because he wrote the book in 54 and you know we all know how it went for the americans <laughs> In yeah, Vietnam it is kind that. of inter- prescient of him for sure. Yeah, um, you know, and then there was, there was Syriana, which was a was an interesting sort of look at the the way the oil industry uh, has effects its tendrils all over the world, and it, its spy elements were where it was sort of a, an anthology picture with all these different stories, but it did have a spy elements because George Clooney played this disaffected American CIA guy, uh, and uh, yeah, I thought that was that was you know typically dense. Uh, spy movies, but also quite a depressing picture in many yeah, ways. Yeah, it was interesting for me because the guy who wrote the novel that it's based on, uh, Robert Baer, um, I believe he was like an actual CIA analyst um, who wrote, I, I actually read his uh, nonfiction book, In Bed with the Devil, which kind of laid out how the, you know, the relationship between uh, the U.S. and Saudi America going back for, for, for decades and, and how it's both helped and hindered the, uh-huh. uh, the American cause and, and, and just the, the strangeness of the relationship, how right. you're basically pouring all this money into the country that's also trying to destroy you. Right. Uh, so, right. Um, you know, I, I recommend that book or, or even uh, the audio book of, of uh, Sleeping with the Devil. But uh, so it was interesting to see this film and not at the time, I don't think I, I put the one and one together to see that uh, it was by the same guy because it was go. like addressing a lot of the same issues. Um, I thought, oh, this all feels really familiar. There you <laughs> go. Yeah. Once I found out who wrote it, like, oh, though. But right. uh but uh, seeing all that in sort of fictional form and dramatized form, I thought it was uh, really well handled. I think Clooney is kind of a version of, of Robert Bear himself. There you go. So, uh, you know, that just made it uh, really come alive for me. I was glad that I'd had some some uh, look into that source material sure. prior to and, seeing and, it. And I think it, in terms of spy movies adapting to the times, it's certainly maybe the best post-9-11 spy movie because it really does address the changes even though it only came out in 2005 mm. it, it addresses some of the changes in the world in the in the new millennium i also wanted to give a quick shout out to munich steven spielberg's look at the 72 olympics and what happened afterwards with uh, the israeli government um pretty much setting out black operatives to end the lives of these uh, these fundamentalists these these terrorists and uh, and i just found it to be a really a very humanistic look at at the life of of people in that profession, and I really I really bought it. I thought it was very well done. It has incredibly great cast, including Daniel Craig pre pre Bond Craig, uh, <clears throat> and uh, 
and I, I just thought it, I thought it's one of Spielberg's most sophisticated and most thoughtful and, and also most violent films. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it, it equates sex and violence in a really interesting and fairly, um, I think a fairly interesting way, um, in a way that I don't know that I thought he was capable of doing in this way before. I, I really liked it though. I interestingly just got into a, a heavy conversation with a friend of mine, an old friend of mine who happens to be Israeli and he is, he hates the film. Oh, like really? he's, well, he's, he's fairly, I would say he's fairly hawkish. And I think the suggestion that Mossad agents could have any compassion for the people that they're hunting, it just, it, it really set him off. He just felt like it was not an authentic depiction of, of the way that, that they would feel <laughs> when, when uh, going after uh, these, these terrorists, these, um, uh, you know, on the other side. So, so I, I really, I enjoyed how complicated it was politically, the film, but also delivered what you want from a spy movie. Yeah, this is, uh, I, I go so far as to say this is probably Spielberg's best film of the millennium uh-huh. uh, of the last 15 years. Uh, certainly the most satisfying for me. Um, I haven't seen it since it came out, but I remember being really impressed at the time. Um, I hadn't seen a lot of Eric Bana's work at that point. Um, he's an actor that I continue to enjoy. Uh, it's always interesting how much he can suppress his Australianness. <laughs> yes. So it was funny to see him in uh, Judd Apatow's Funny People, where he just kind of plays an over-the-top Australian character yeah, for a change. It's funny that he, uh, because in, and I think it was, is, a, is it the... Um, Knocked up. Uh, Seth Rogen mentions how Eric Bana it made like Jews tough for having been in, in <laughs> Munich, and then they got him to act with in the next next Apatow movie. I, I thought that was a was a funny gag and, and an interesting kind of closing the circle, if you will. Yeah, it's it. It felt like Spielberg had a real love for the material that uh, you know that this whole you know incident is, had had kind of been underserved in films like Radon and Tebby and. And uh, there's another. There was another one. Seven Days in Munich or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, but but that the, the full story hadn't really been told. And and uh, you know, it certainly is his most measured. Um, you know, adult film. Um, you know, right up there with uh, like Empire of the Sun, another film. Even though it's through the eyes of a child, I, I find that that was one of his more mature movies. Absolutely. And uh, I you know I really enjoy that one. I, I felt it was like kind of on that level. And of course, both of those films are kind of underrated in the general pantheon of, of Spielberg films. But uh, you know, in terms of like movie craftsmanship and not resorting to the usual tricks that we've seen him do over and over again, uh, you know, showing some restraint, um, but just you know a great command of the, of the medium at the same time uh, you know just shows what uh, what he can really do when he's not overly concerned about delivering a Steven Spielberg film yeah. and I'm kind of hoping that's what we see when Bridge of Spies uh, his upcoming film comes out that's the trailers, right. yeah the trailers for that are just in theaters now yeah. and uh, I, I'm kind of stoked yeah I am too and I, I'm interested of course it's right in line with what we're exactly, talking yeah. about today uh, though I don't know Tom Hanks uh um, I, yeah, we'll see. I, I don't know if the trailers are really, really grabbing me, but I, uh, the idea of Spielberg doing a spy movie, I'm all over that. Well, I, you know, from what I gather, he's again, you know, going back to the topic of a of a normal guy getting sucked into this world. I, mean, I think he's a lawyer right. who doesn't really deal with international espionage cases, but he gets for that. That's the reason why he gets drafted into the the whole uh, Gary Powers, Francis Gary Powers, the uh, YouTube 
uh, spy plane pilot right. uh, storyline. So, you know, I've always been fascinated by that period in history. And, uh, you know, again, there's that whole crossing the Iron Curtain uh, plot line. So, uh, you know, it's, I'm right on I'm right on board for that. <laughs> right. Awesome. Now, before we wrap things up and our, our conclude our, uh, our look at spy movies, we would really be doing a disservice if we we uh, omitted the Le Carre adaptations. And Le Carre has turned out to be kind of the king of the genre, certainly, I think, in in in, no, in novels. And, and and his his books keep getting adapted. Now, I'm going to list out all the movies. I think this is a complete list of his feature film work, not television adaptations, but feature films. The Spy Who Came In From the Cold in 1965, The Deadly Affair in 66, Looking Glass War in 69, Little Drummer Girl in 84, Russia House from 1990, The Tailor of Panama 2001, The Constant Gardener in 2005, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy in 2011, and A Most Wanted Man in 2014. So, yeah, and, and you know what? Looking at all, I haven't seen all of these movies, but for the most part, they're pretty great. They're, they're certainly, uh, uh, maybe, maybe... I don't know, I would say there are 75-80% of these are, are must-see if you're a, a fan of spy movies. Yeah, The Deadly Affair is interesting. I did not know about the existence of uh, of this movie uh, until we started looking at this uh, this whole stream. And, and uh, directed by Sidney Lumet, one of the, the finest uh, directors, usually known for sort of gritty urban stories like Serpico and, you know, his kind of New York films. Uh, it is available through one of the studios um, made on demand, uh, like Warner Archive. I don't know if it's part of that series, but um, it is out there. So I'm going to track track it down. And maybe the next time, we, maybe when Bridge of Spies comes out, we'll do a follow-up. But And uh, I'll try and get us a copy yeah, by that time. But, but uh, you know, with James Mason, Sidney Lumet, and uh, Le Carre story, it's got to be entertaining on some level yeah absolutely uh i and uh, yeah mason is always worth seeing and uh, we watched the looking glass war which uh, directed by frank r pearson and it's a that was an odd looking movie there's some pretty avant-garde stuff in the way that it was shot there's a there's one scene that takes place in a pub where there's a 360 degree camera pan it was <laughs> quite quite odd and and this is uh again the lead character being very sort of amoral christopher jones plays the Polish refugee who gets recruited by the British Secret Service to sneak into East Germany and investigate the possible existence of interballistic missiles. And he's trained by a very young Anthony Hopkins, including a great scene where they wrestle. <laughs> they fight. <laughs> no, Hopkins is, it's weird to see him so young. I mean, the, the only film I think in which he's younger is The Lion in Winter, where he's facing off against Peter O'Toole and, and Catherine Hepburn. So this is uh, shortly after, and that kind of made him a name as far as uh, films went. Um, although during the 70s, he had kind of a dodgy uh, film career. Think of Magic, the ventriloquist dummy movie. Oh, yes. And so on. Um, but here, he's very dynamic. He's very energetic. He's very angry. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it's you know, I'm, and at the time that we watched it, I was surmising that, well, he probably did a lot of stage combat uh, stuff for the Shakespearean plays that he was in in, in England. So uh, he gets to use that physicality here, and it's kind of nice to see because most people didn't really take much note of him prior to uh, Silence of the Lambs, which is, you know, halfway through his career almost. So It's true. He didn't. He wasn't really a big star, certainly in North America before that, but uh, but he built up to it. And, oh, uh, for sure. And he had a lot of, he has a lot of grace. I, I noticed that. He has a very, as you mentioned, the physicality is really nice to watch. And, he, and I think that's maybe one of the best things about uh, about him in, in this. I, I don't know that I, I love the movie, but, uh, 
but uh yeah i think partly because that leading character played by jones he you know he i don't know if there's been a less sympathetic spy sort of leading party when he when he finally goes on his on his tour into east germany which apparently they shot in spain for some reason <laughs> it uh, does you know, not look like east germany no sure. no he he kills people for no really good reason other than he's desperate and uh, and it just yeah it's it's hard to have any sympathy for him at all yeah he's kind of a cretin and uh, <laughs> and christopher jo- christopher jones is he's a very handsome actor uh, uh oddly enough a uh, very short career um he played uh, a rock star becomes president in <laughs> the shape of things to come and then uh, uh sorry wild in the streets the shape of things to come is the song that he sings uh but wild in the streets is the movie and then they put all everybody over 30 gets put into these concentration camps and force fed lsd uh so that was his kind of big <laughs> splashy uh debut um somehow that was good enough to get him a lead in a david lean movie ryan's daughter uh, so uh you know all of a sudden he's he's kind of a big deal and he made this film um and i think he's in a couple other things but um around the weirdly enough the the story that i read was that he was involved with sharon tate um, and after she was killed, he just got those, the whole Manson murders thing just, uh, creeped him out so much that he just, uh, put movies behind him and wouldn't be in another movie for, for decades. So, huh. um, like, I guess Tarantino tried to get him for, for a couple of his projects and he turned him down. So, um, uh, he's an interesting actor in that regard. They didn't have a lot of love of his craft, you know, or not enough to, to kind of continue in it. Um, so he, you know, he's kind of an unpredictable, uh, kind of a weird actor because, like, yeah. as you say, you know, he, he kind of has this kind of these roguish good looks and this completely off-putting attitude. And it's a weird combination for sure. It, is. it really is. Now, now you also saw Little Drummer Girl. This is one I haven't seen. George Roy Hill directed. Yeah, uh, where Diane Dr. Keaton is re- is recruited <clears throat> by the Mossad. Now, I gather Keaton may have been a poor choice in the casting of this. Yeah, well, the the book was a huge success. I mean, uh, I think the novel was kind of like the first one to come out after the success of the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy miniseries. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it came out between that and Smiley's People, where he, his, uh, Alec Guinness's uh, Smiley character uh, returns in, in the novel and in the, in the TV miniseries. So, uh, Le Carre was kind of a hot property at this point. So the novel was a huge hit. First of all, it was different from the spy who came in from the cold and these other books and that it had a female protagonist and it wasn't so much about the cold war as, uh, as about what was happening in the middle East. So it was very au courant. Um, and yeah, Diane Keaton plays an actress. She's an American actress working in England, but she's very much a kind of, uh, I'm sure she was inspired by Vanessa Redgrave, um, you know, in her, rant against uh, anti-Zionist hoodlums. Uh, right. <laughs> so Diane Keaton, I, I'm pretty sure that's she's kind of a thinly veiled version of that. Uh, in the book, I believe she's a younger actress, a younger British actress, like in her early to mid-20s. Um, so for the, because they had signed Diane Keaton, of course, was on a roll after her her uh, Woody Allen films. Uh, she gets signed on here, but of course she's an American in her 30s. Um and the it just doesn't really fit. Like this character is supposed to be really passionate about issues and and uh, global injustice and that sort of thing. And it's kind of the fiery passion of, of 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 a young person who just like has these young ideals. And you know she doesn't really feel fully committed to to, to that uh, aspect of the character. But yeah, so she's she's actually you know anti-Israeli. She's pro-Palestine. Okay, and she gets recruited by Israel because they her they feel that her cover would be effective. That she's you know, publicly been very vocal about 
you know, the Israeli persecution of uh, the Palestinians. So they actively go after her to turn her into a double agent for their side. Um, and that's what really works in the film and how, how they kind of turn her against her own beliefs in a way. Um, and uh, the cold, uh, with with Klaus Kinski as the uh, as the head of uh, as the, the the Mossad security officer. <laughs> well, he's always who, worth seeing. Yeah, he's uh, and he may not be right for the role either, but he's Klaus friggin' Kinski. He's just <laughs> you can't take your eyes off the guy. And yeah. he's, for once, he's not playing a creep. He's playing a guy who's kind of super intelligent and kind of sympathetic and kind of almost endearing. But also, you know, he's got these devious machinations to turn Diane Keaton's character into an agent for their side. And, and, and you get a good look. I mean, this is the, you know, this is the stuff that comes right out of the book where, um, you know, you see the, the, all the psychological tricks they use to kind of turn her over to their side. And, uh, that's the stuff that's really great. Um, and, uh, the, the, the final half hour of it is really effective as she finally, uh, becomes the double agent, joins the Palestinian side, you know, in body, if not in spirit, and then has to gets involved in a bombing plot and has to kind of betray these uh, these top uh, Palestinian agents. So the, the the last half hour is worth it. It's, it's like two hours and 10 minutes. So the last chunk of it makes the previous part worthwhile. Okay. Even while her performance is often a bit cringeworthy. Yeah, okay. Um, you know, it's just, and it's not, you know, it's, I don't know if because she wasn't that committed to the material or she just wasn't right for the part, but it, it it's an awkward fit and uh you know it does distract you and i think that's one of the reasons why again i found a copy it was only put out through those mod uh, programs it wasn't given like a popular ah, dvd release so it's, it's you know available for anybody who really really wants to see it right. uh, i remember there was a huge push on this film when it came out of course it's from the director of the sting so it was a big name in the director and of course uh, diane keaton was riding high and uh so there's a big push and the reviews were for the most part, pretty negative uh-huh. for, for for those reasons. And and some people felt it dumbed down the book, too, um, which I guess a case could be made. But, it, I mean, how do you cram one of these John le Carré novels into two hours? It's, yeah. It's pretty difficult. It I, I think I think story-wise and in terms of the machinations of the plot, I thought it, was, uh, it wasn't as hard to follow as some people make it look out to be. Um, and it is worth seeing. Um, if you're in Halifax, Video Difference have a copy for rent. So uh, you can track it out. <laughs> track it down there um before we we wrap up i just want to say you know i know the constant gardener is a wonderful film uh tinker taylor soldier spy and a most wanted man which was one of philip seymour hoffman's last roles these these are all movies that i think most people who know anything about about movies will recognize they all have been at least nominated for academy awards and uh, i think are all excellent films in their own way they're definitely worth seeing i wasn't that much a fan of taylor of panama which john borman's um picture i felt it was a little bit um it's a little bit it was a bit satiric and i wasn't expecting that i guess and i also felt that brendan gleason playing hispanic was really a bad idea yeah <laughs> the casting so, is odd yeah it really it's, is it's really I, I mean odd you know i enjoyed jeffrey rush but it, he's a, it's almost a caricature his his character yeah yeah um, and i get the impression that that pierce brosnan is doing everything he can to sort of like you know uh kick away from the the bond thing just kind of try something a little different and he as he did with the matador around this time as well but but um, but before uh, we finish, I really do want to give a shout out to The Russia House, which mm. for years has been one of my favorite spy movies. Actually, one of my favorite movies, period. Uh, it was directed by Fred Skepsi and written by Tom Stoppard, adapting Le Carre, which is a terrific connection of writers. I mean, yeah, it's funny. You get Pinter doing Looking Glass War and Tom Stoppard doing doing this one. You know, Clearly, these are you need a literate 
guy to, to yes. kind of make it all work. Yeah, for sure. Well, Roger Ebert described John le Carre's novels as a chess problems in which one solution is elegant and all the others take too many moves. And I think that's what's so great about The Russia House. It's so elegant. Uh, I've watched it again and again. Sean Connery plays Boozy Barley Blair, a British publisher who spends a lot of time in Lisbon. Now, the British Secret Service intercept mail that has been sent to him from a Russian scientist and interrogate him at his Lisbon home, eventually forcing him to travel to Moscow and St. Petersburg to find out whether what the scientist has sent is actually real. And there he meets a friend and former lover of the scientist, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, at her most luminous. She was She's spe- terrific in this, she, yeah. Speaking of, like, a, a, a stretch of great movies, she was in a lot of really good movies at this point in her career. Now, this May-October love affair is maybe a little unlikely, but I think their chemistry is pretty genuine, and You know, this is one of those spy thrillers that works just as well as a romance, and maybe what I liked about the Tamarind Seed is also true about the Russia House. Um, At two points in the movie, it deftly flashes back within the film. It goes into this flashback zone right at the beginning and at the end, and it gives you a different perspective of events we'd seen previously, and I think that's so cleverly done. Uh, And and absolutely gorgeous locations. The spy stuff is great, and and on top of that, you get Roy Scheider and Ken Russell both acting (laughs) in the thing. Uh, Roy Scheider playing the CIA guy and Ken Russell playing one of the British intelligence operatives, and there's a great... Branford Marsalis sacks in the score. Uh, it has a lot of sweetness, and uh, it even ends in a freeze frame, which uh, which you, you just don't see enough of anymore. Yeah, I I saw this shortly after it came out on a plane, <laughs> so not the ideal uh, viewing experience. But uh, I remember being you know really really enraptured by this film just because of the subject matter and of course the Le Carre's involvement and uh, and and just the the Russian setting as well. I, I don't know for how much of it was actually filmed in Russia. I think quite a bit of it, yeah. Um, it was right after the fall of the wall, so I think it was fairly novel to shoot actually yeah. in, in Moscow. So this film has so much going for it and and a lot of a lot of chemistry and charisma from its stars and definitely definitely one of my favorite late period Connery performances and at a time when he wasn't making a lot of great films. You know, I, I think of like Finding Forrester and, and Medicine Man, a lot of films I'd rather forget, but this is definitely proof that, uh, you know, when he had a, had a good part, he could really make the most of it. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. You can contact us on Twitter at Lends Me Your Ears, all one word, or search for Lends Me Your Ears on Facebook. We're on Stitcher, and you can rate and review us on iTunes, and if you do, we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. Our email is LendsMeYourEarsPodcast at gmail.com. I'm Karsten Knox, and my Twitter is at Karsten Knox. And I'm Stephen Cook, and my Twitter is at CH underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. Thanks for joining us on Lends Me Your Ears in our journey through intrigue, espionage, and deceit. Long may the men in gray suits continue to do their secret work. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. Lends Me Your Ears is engineered by Luke Badio and is produced by Dave Anderson and Jason Michael McIsaac. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music, tour dates, and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Discover more great shows on the Village Soundcast Network by going to villagesoundcast.com. We can also be found on Twitter at vsoundcast and on Facebook by searching the Village Soundcast Network. Rate and review us on iTunes and you'll get a shout-out on an upcoming show. Send feedback to lendsmeyourearspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.
This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. <laughs>